we're buying an existing facility and then we're converting it into self-storage. So this building, for instance, is just under 140,000 square feet, but there's too much product out there for it to support 140,000 square feet, but there's already tenants there. So we're going to divide the building in half. We're going to have half of it being flex warehouse space. So we're going to keep those tenants. We're going to keep the income in that portion of the building. And then the under marketed building, we're going to convert that into self-storage. This is the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan, where we interview local real estate investors and professionals to go over tips, tricks, and investing strategies to help you learn about the business and to enable you to achieve your financial goals. And now, welcome to the show. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. Today, we have Scott Crone. Scott is the founder of Coda Management, a real estate investment group that teams up with investors to purchase undervalued warehouse space to convert them into climate-controlled self-storage facilities that are then managed by a top three operator. In this episode, we'll go over how to invest in self-storage units, how to analyze the deals, and how to go over the benefits of investing in self-storage. So if you're interested in getting into the self-storage space, you need to listen to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, subscribe to the show and leave a review. We release episodes every Wednesday and Sunday, and release the show notes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. By the way, if you need help financing your next real estate project, check out Conventus Lending. Conventus is the best hard money lender with amazing rates and incredible service. I've used them for years, and they've always been incredibly easy to work with. If you need a hard money loan, contact me at sean at everythingrei.com to get $1,000 off of your processing fee. And if you want to know the secrets of how investors in the Bay Area are making huge profits in one of the most expensive markets in the world, Download the free Ultimate Bay Area Investing Handbook on our website, everythingrei.com. Enjoy. All right, Scott, thank you so much for being on our show today. Go ahead and introduce yourself and let us know who you are and tell us what you do. Well, first of all, thank you very much for having me. I appreciate the opportunity of speaking with you. My name is Scott Crone. I uh, own two companies. One is called Coda Design Build, where we act as a developer and uh, facilitate design build of both retail, when I say retail, so private investments as well as our investment portfolio. And then we have Coda Management Group, which is our investment platform where we are acquiring distressed, underperforming buildings throughout the Midwest, and we are converting them into self-storage. That's super interesting. Can you tell me your investing journey and how you got to where you are now and why you're investing in self-storage facilities? Well, I think it's sort of like the Beatles song, This Long and Winding Road. I began when I was about to graduate from college and realized that the path that I had thought was laid out in front of me was going to be changing. And I think that's the theme for you know my career is that there's constant change. And I think that's like life. There's constant change. And so I began pursuing architecture and getting my master's in architecture. And I was fortunate enough that my professor, whom I was a TA for, gave me the opportunity also to work in his office. And my master's thesis was something that actually we ended up working on for six years and implemented and were able to design and build it. And it was a 400 unit, $100 million multifamily development. So we had condominiums, we had townhomes and single family homes all in this 50 acre site. And so I was working for him for six years. And then in 1998, I began CODA where we began focusing first on single family homes. And then we got into multifamily and then we got into uh helping churches. So we've worked with five different churches over the past 25 years, as well as getting into flex space, commercial retail, and now self-storage. Yeah. So what makes self-storage an attractive investment versus, let's say, multifamily or single-family investments? 
Well, the first concept is that I see it as apartments without toilets or kitchens. And so it's a lot more simplistic and concise product that we're able to offer. And it's a fraction of the dollar amount compared to condominium. So when we did the 400 units, it was on, you know, $100 million in, in sales. When I do 600 self-storage lockers, we're talking a 10% of the total cost of the self-storage, I mean, of the multifamily. So it's a lot less exposure. And personally, what I like about it is I can analyze and understand the demographics. From an investment point of view, we can go into it with a lot greater confidence and certainty than we were able to do on the single family or the multifamily. Yeah. So when you're looking at potential places for you know new self-storage developments, like what are you looking at? What is a good buying criteria for you? Well, we're looking specifically at the demographics. So everything from what's the growth? We're going down to a specific site. So whenever we consider a community or an area or for city. So for instance, we're going into Louisville right now. So we have, we're under contract for a property in Louisville. And we can't just look at the city of Louisville as a whole. We're, we're looking at that specific address. And then we're looking at one, three, and five miles around there to see what the population is, what the density is, what the medium income is, the percentage of renters. We're looking at what the saturation level of self-storage compared to the population, which is this number of square feet of lockers per capita. But then we're also looking at specifically which portion of that demographic is climate controlled versus non-climate controlled within self-storage and also the growth. And so, you know, what attracted us about Louisville in this case is how much growth has happened, how much is projected to continue and how there is unmet demand within the climate controlled arena that we're looking at. Can you share some of those numbers so that we can have like a frame of reference? What are you looking at in terms of like population or medium income to say this is a good place to put a new storage facility? Certainly. So in those that one and three, five mile radius, what we're seeing is that there's over 100,000 people within that area. More importantly, there's going to be, I think, a couple hundred million dollars worth of development. So there's massive developments going on within three miles, like 400, 500 unit apartment buildings and condominiums that are going to be developed, which is going to be bringing more residents into that immediate marketplace. And apartments and condos are a great market because of the fact that they don't have basements, attics, or garages to store stuff. So they need auxiliary space at a low economical price in order to you know, support their current lifestyle. There's also an abundance of students in the area. So you have, there's like uh, four or five different universities right in that area. University of Louisville being one of the more major ones is the major one. And then when we look at all those things in traffic, we're getting 12,000 cars driving by our site daily. That's the number that we look for. The medium income is $40,000 per household. And what that tells us is how big our average unit should be. So the more affluent the community, then the larger our average size is. The less affluent the community, then the smaller the average size of our locker is. And the reason is that in a less affluent community, they're willing to pay a higher price per square foot compared to a larger one, you know, because they can't afford a larger one. They don't need a larger one. They just need a 25 square feet or 50 square feet or whatever it may be. And so that's what we look for. And then the other one is square feet of lockers per capita. So the national average is around seven through the East Coast, California, and the South, it goes up to about nine square feet of lockers per capita. And we're underneath that. And so if we look at it as a whole, we're above it. 
in terms of both climate control and non-climate control. But in this specific area of Louisville, there's an unmet demand for climate control product. And so by us bringing in climate control, we know that there's unmet demand that we can meet there. And so that creates a market for us. So how do you know exactly if there's demand for climate control lockers versus non-climate control lockers? Well, it's a general statistic that it goes across the country. So right now, we're just around 10% of the overall U.S. population is clients or purchasers of self-storage. And so when we look at a, a different area and we see that ratio of number of square feet of lockers per capita, we get a sense of what needs to be met and what can be met and at what price. And so, for instance, in a more heavily dense urban area, like uh, the city of Chicago or certainly New York, or, then the price per square foot goes up. But what we're seeing there in that community is that the lockers, the facilities that are there, 90% of them are occupied and they're getting close to $16 a square foot in rent. So in a tier two market like Louisville compared to like New York, LA, San Francisco, those sorts of things, Chicago, you're going to get much higher than that. But for that class of city, which is 600,000 people, getting $16 a square foot is a very good price. Wow. And can you share some of the numbers in terms of like a purchase price for you know, the land as well as how much it costs for development? And then what are you planning on getting for the rent per unit? Well, we're not buying raw land. We're buying an existing building. So that's the difference between what we're doing, what other developers are doing, where they, they go and buy and then they'll scrape it or it'll be empty and they're building a new building. We're buying an existing facility and then we're converting it into self-storage. So this building, for instance, is just under 140,000 square feet, but there's too much product out there for it to support 140,000 square feet but there's already tenants there. So we're going to divide the building in half. We're going to have half of it being flex warehouse space. So we're going to keep those tenants. We're going to keep the income in that portion of the building. And then the under marketed building, we're going to convert that into self storage. And so they will range, you know, because the medium income is 40,000 square feet, we're getting a higher price per square foot for the smaller units. And so, you know, they'll rent for anywhere from 60 to $200 a square $200 a unit per month, depending on which size and if they're on the first floor versus the second floor, or the third floor, or fourth floor. And so, you know, there's always economic incentives like first month free, you know, those sorts of things to get people in. But then the range in price based upon where they are and, and what features they have in terms of, you know, ease of access, those sorts of things. And how much does it cost to like acquire something like this? And how much does it cost to value add renovations? Well, I can't tell you the exact price of the property because we haven't closed yet. Sure. Let's take a look at some other uh, property that you've done in the past. So we'll look at the one that we did in Dayton, Ohio. We bought 90,000 square feet for that one and we bought it for a million dollars. So we basically bought for $11 a square foot, which is well below replacement costs, which is one of the things that attracted us to that. And then we're going to be putting a couple million dollars into it in terms of that building was rather unique. It had been empty for 40 years. It was in downtown Dayton. There's like tremendous amount of development going on right around us in terms of like 400 apartment units being developed within a quarter mile. So we had townhomes, we had condominiums, we had lofts all being built right around it. And, you know, just really underserved in terms of the product type. So, but this building needed a new roof. It had many of the windows were missing. It had no electric, it had no power. It had no 
heating system at all. So we have to put all that into it. And so that one we were doing both, it's in an opportunity zone, like our property in Louisville, as well as Toledo, but it's also PACE financing eligible. So we were able to get both opportunity fund zones available for our investors, as well as PACE financing in order to um, improve the capital stack. Yeah. Can you talk about financing for your commercial projects? Like what kind of debt are you putting onto your developments? Well, at first we're putting a, you know, a construction bridge to perm type product. So right now we have two projects that we're working with the SBA on. One is already closed with the SBA. The second one we're trying to you know finish up with the SBA. We're in the final stages of that. But the other ones we're using local banks to Ohio. So the ones in Ohio, we are using local banks there. And then uh, Louisville will begin the process of looking working with banks that are more knowledgeable of that immediate area. Yeah. And what kind of terms are you usually seeing for projects like what you have? You know, how much down payment, how much do you have to pay for costs, and what's like the timeline to get this all closed? Yeah, so we're putting down 30% between the equity as well as the PACE financing. And the PACE financing is considered an equity position because it gets applied to the real estate taxes through a special assessment. So it's above the line item. There is no lien you know, there's no second mortgage or anything like that. So when our lender comes in, they get the first mortgage and then we just have to pay the property taxes like what we would normally have to do. And so that's why it's considered equity. And so, you know, the getting about 70% uh, loan to loan to cost, but our loan to value is much lower than that. And, you know, it takes us about nine months to get them built. And then we have a one year of lease up period in terms of getting past our operational expenses and then one year to cover debt service, and then we're cash flowing by year three. Yeah. And uh, can you explain what the PACE program is for my listeners who don't know what that is? Sure. It's through the Department of Energy. It's a federal program that is passed by the state and implemented at a local level. So the idea is that they're trying to encourage economic development to improve energy performance of buildings. So this can be done for any commercial building, but also residential so if you're going and making energy improvements to the building, you can qualify up to 20% of the end value of the property for PACE financing. So if our building is $10 million in value, we could qualify up to $2 million of PACE. The problem is that we can't put in $2 million worth of energy improvements into our self-storage facilities. We don't have the box that qualify. So that's like a new roof, new windows, insulation, energy efficient lighting, the motion sensors, those sorts of things, our heating and air conditioning elevator also is included. Plumbing, we you know, we have two toilets and two sinks. We're not putting a whole lot of plumbing into it. But the cost of those things can get applied to PACE. So the PACE provider will fund those aspects of the construction draw and the construction lender will fund the balance of it. And then it's amortized over the lifespan of the product. And so typically about 20, 22 years, and then it gets applied as a special assessment to the real estate taxes. So we have to apply and volunteer to go into the program, and then they amortize it over that period of time with an with a interest payment. So the principal and interest is paid twice a year on the two real estate taxes, and you, know, you just pay it back over that, and it's transferable. So once we go and sell the property, we can transfer that value of that asset over to the, the next buyer. I see. So instead of having like a regular mortgage statement where you're paying every month, you're just paying more in property taxes for this program. Absolutely.
Got it. And what kind of interest rate does the PACE program uh, accrue at? It's like a bond. I mean, it's low interest because of the fact that it's considered like a bond type investment. So there's two principal providers of PACE. One is the local governing authority. So that would be like the port authority of the local city or municipality. And then the other ones are private. And so the privates have to compete with the government. And so that's why they're very low interest bond type rates. I see. It seems very interesting and very uh, like involved. How would you recommend someone who's brand new to get started if they want to get into self-storage? Well, there's three different classes of self-storage. So I think you know it's important for everyone to first evaluate what level of participation and what level of abilities that they have and what are their goals. And the three levels are like the first generation or I, I classify as class C, which is more of a rural area. And they probably were built 20, 30, 40 years ago and not climate controlled. And these are smaller facilities and you might be able to pick them up for about a million, two million. And I, I equate that to like a penny stock. It's a low point of entry. You're going to get a cash residual income off of it. You're not going to see huge appreciation. You might even be able to improve it a little bit, but it's not like it's going to go from a nine cap down to a six cap. It just won't happen. It might hover around between eight and nine cap. The next class is class B, which is similar to the first generation. It looks very similar to the classic drive up. You know, you go through a fence and you see rows of garage doors and lockers and stuff like that. But the class B will be newer and uh, also could be climate controlled. And so there's a little bit more options with that. And then the class A is what we're doing, which is more in urban settings and predominantly either new construction or, or recently remodeled. And those are, you drive into the facilities and they're fully climate controlled. And so those are the three different classes. And, you know, if you're looking at a class A or B, depending on the amount of the capital, if you're looking at a class C, you might be able to do an SBA on your own. Class B, you might need a partner too, or if you're interested in class A, then that would be, you know, you could join a group that is doing it, an investor with that group. I see. And so what's your strategy? Are you planning on holding on to these properties for a long time or do you end up selling them after a couple of years? Well, I'm in real estate, so everything is for sale, right? <laughs> but uh, the, these are in the opportunity zones. And so we do have a plan of holding them for a period of time for our investors. But we do have different strategies for you know whether we are in the opportunity zone or not. But that's the beauty of what we're doing. We're looking at both at it as from an appreciation point of view as well as a cash flow. And that's the biggest reason why we've gone into the Class A's because we can accomplish both. Like the Class B, we consider it to be like a blue chip. And the Class A, we consider it to be like a growth stock. Being in the Bay Area, I'm sure you're very familiar with all the different levels of stocks out there. But that's why we like it, because it, there is an aspect of appreciation as well as cash flow. Yeah. And what is your like buying criteria in terms of your return or dollar amount? Well, I mean, each project is different, but we won't go into it unless we can get a 20%. That's what we're looking for. That's our comfort level because we do recognize that it's a longer term investment and risk. And so, you know, that is something that we look internally for the project to make sure. That's why I was saying, if we're looking at a class C or B, if you're, you know, buying it a nine cap and it might only go to an eight cap, you know, you're going to get a good cash flow off of it for the value of what you're doing, but we're not seeing the appreciation in, in terms of that. So where we're getting that rate, those rate of returns is both in the appreciation as well as the cash flow. Yeah. And are you looking in terms of like a yearly IRR or what's your like 20% statistic? Oh, that we looked at the annual rate of return for that. Got it.
anything in terms of your cash flow, or you, like you said, it's mostly on a combination of both? Yeah, we look at it as a whole because obviously we're generating both. So, you know, if we were just looking at it from a cash flow perspective, then they wouldn't meet it because of the fact that we have a ramp up period of time. And so, you know, the benefit is, is actually holding these assets and then either refinancing them out to get the cash out or creating the tax shelters through the opportunity zones or cost segregation. But, you know, we've done historical tax credits. We've sold off the cell towers, you know, all things in which to enhance our investors rate of return. Do you have like a target sell off date? We look at it as a three to five year investment, but obviously with the opportunity zones, we have to go a, bit, a little bit longer on that. You know, if we can reinvest it with the opportunity zones, then that is something that we do. So we established the opportunity zones for our investors. And that's something that we just did for them. You know, we're, we don't make money off those funds. It's a type of thing where we've created it to enhance our investors rate of return. So when we're doing that, we're always looking out for, you know, how we can make sure that they're protected. Yeah. You know, I always wonder for these big projects, you come in and you buy somewhat of a distressed asset, you put in some money, some work into it, and now you make it perform even better, like the value is worth more. I always wonder who ends up buying these properties once you decide to sell them? Well, in the most part, the, the REITs, so the real estate investment trusts, you know, the, the companies that we're actually hiring to manage them are our main buyers. So, you know, we work with CubeSmart, we, you know, we've worked with uh, Uncle Bob's, which is and also, you know, we've talked with Extra Space, but those are the main buyers of them, U-Haul, Public. They're all looking to expand the portfolio. And, and one of the reasons why they like to buy them is that they're publicly traded entities. And so when they buy an underperforming building, when I say underperforming, it's not fully leased up or, you know, they're in construction, it pulls down the valuation of their stock. And so they have to be careful of how many that they can buy. And so they'd rather buy, pay a little bit more and then buy it um, as a performing asset so that it looks better for their stocks. Yeah. Um, your strategy seems very, very solid. I was wondering if there are any um, like parts of uncertainty that come with your business? Well, every business has uncertainty, right? You know, I mean, we're one of the most uncertain times of uh, American history in terms of economics. In fact, I was just reading an article about like, how does one predict what is happening? But, you know, uncertainty comes from competition in our market. That's the largest factor of what we're doing. You know, based upon our experience, we're cutting down a lot of the questions with respect to construction or cost. So we really model off a lot of what we've done over the past 25 years as our experience to get a good understanding of what the product is before we go in and buy it. We're managing our risk that way. We're managing our risk with respect to the market. But there's some natural barriers that also help us. Zoning is one of them. You know, it's getting harder to rezone properties to self-storage. So there's a natural barrier there. The building that we have in Louisville is zoned for it. Dayton was zoned for it. Toledo was zoned for it. So we didn't have to go in and get any, you know, special permits for that. Our project in Wisconsin was zoned for it, but then they changed the zoning. And so we had to rezone it. They changed the definition of storage and they created self-storage. They put them in two different classifications, if you can believe that. So they worked with us on that because they recognized that we bought it for that purpose and they'd already given us the zoning for it. So that is one barrier. The other side is finding a building that is compatible for it and that can support it or a large enough plot of land or competing density as well. So those are the things that we look for what are some natural barriers of entry that protect what we're doing? And how are you getting those leads in the first place? 
Well, it's not just one source. We have a director of sales and acquisition in our office. His name's Martin Teradena, and that's his sole job is to find properties and as well as work with our investors. And so, you know, we have people calling us like, I got a call today, say, hey, I have this property in this town. Will it work? And, you know, will you take a look at it with us or figure out if what we can do with it? So we get people calling us. He's got mailers out. He's got flyers out. He's got working with different local brokers. We're a part of a real estate community that's over 30,000 people that, you know, know that we are the self-storage guys. And so they, you know, tell us about it and stuff like that. So it's really a combination of just different, you know, avenues. And I think that's the main thing in real estate is you just can't have one. You got to have multiple funnels of bringing you leads and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And then once you get the lead, since I know you're pretty spread out across the country, how do you find the right team members to work with to make sure the project gets executed correctly? So we do all of our bidding locally here in Chicago, but when we first go into a community, we do a lot of research and a lot of that is just driving around and looking to see who's working in those communities and writing down names and and calling people. But we rely upon this network of 30,000 people that we can put out there and say, hey, you know, when we went into the Dayton market, we said, hey, we're going to be building this property in Dayton, downtown Dayton. Does anybody know of uh, someone who'd be interested in being a superintendent? And uh, we were able to get leads that way and, and interview a bunch of people and decided on one candidate. And it's been working out great. And we've done that in Toledo and Milwaukee. And obviously, the ones in Chicago, we've taken care of ourselves. Yeah. So you just get one point man and then have them be in charge of the rest of the project. Well, so our director of construction here in Chicago is in charge of the project. But he will then coordinate all the contracts, you know, line up all the subcontractors and that sort of stuff with that person locally. It's just our eyes and ears and making sure that things are going well. People are showing up, doing what they're supposed to be doing in our quality control. And then once we're operational, then we hire CubeSmart to run the facilities. Got it. So they're like a self-storage management company that we don't have one here, so I'm not really sure who they are, but. Oh, I think you do. Okay, maybe I would if I uh, saw them. Yeah, they're the third largest self-storage operator in the country. So they're publicly traded, but they have a division that's called third-party management, and we hire them. So it's no different when you walk into a McDonald's or Holiday Inn. You don't really know who owns it, but it's got a flagship and a flag on it, and you know you're buying a certain level of product. So when you call, like if you're in San Francisco and you need a self-storage, and you'll call CubeSmart and we'll go to Pennsylvania and they'll tell you what they have locally and then they'll set an appointment for you. But in today's market, a lot of it's changing all online that you can do it all online without ever, you know, having to go in. And then once you go in, you get your code and you get your access code and the door goes up and the guy will have the lock locker ready for you. The person, I shouldn't say the guy, the person. Right. You mentioned for your other project, half of it is a warehouse and you're going to make the other half into self-storage units. Are you going to put like some kind of barrier so that they don't end up in the warehouse facility or? Melting over or osmosis over. Yeah. The building is interesting. It was originally a candy factory and it's had a series of additions on it. And so it naturally has a devising wall between the east and the west side. And so we're just going to make sure that, you know, those openings are closed off. And so there's no uh, osmosis between the two sides of the building. Got it. And what kind of work goes into creating climate control self-storage building? And like, what's the most difficult part in that kind of construction? Working with the elevators. Elevators are the most difficult because we're taking like a, you know, this building is, I think, built in the 20s or 30s. And so when we're bringing in a new elevator, we have to make it ADA accessible, but also passenger compliant. 
So these are the old elevators where you go in and you close the doors and you pull a lever and it goes up. And when you see that you're at the right floor, you stop and then you open up the doors and you walk out, right? Well, those don't have like fire automatic recall where if the fire department calls it, it goes down to the first floor and the doors open up and, you know, those sort of safety features. And so that's the hardest thing is configuring these spaces to accept modern equipment. But how about for the storage units themselves? Well, that's easy. I mean, that's it's just more of laying it out because the idea is they go up eight feet, corrugated metal. So they lay a track, they set the walls and put the doors in. And then up above it is all chicken wire and all of the general lighting, all the general heating and the fire suppression just covers everything. And so the lockers go up in, you know, two, three weeks. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, what's the difference really between, you know, a climate controlled self-storage facility versus like a regular one? The biggest one is in our buildings, people drive into the buildings to unload their facilities. So their stuff. So they will drive in, the door comes down and now they're, you know, free from rain, snow, water, whatever it is. Plus it's also secure. So they can leave their door, their cars unlocked. They can leave the trunk open, you know, put their stuff on a dolly and they roll it to their, you know, their locker, they unload it. And then they come back in and they can open up the garage door and they drive out. So they're totally out of the elements. So we have both loading docks as well as, you know, the ability to drive into the buildings. Got it. Yeah. Cause all the self-storage Facilities that I, you know, think about are the ones I see on TV where you're kind of just like out there and then there's like a gate and you just open it real quick and put yourself inside and then close it. That would be class B and class C. Got it. Yeah. So you're saying this one is basically inside a giant like warehouse with different doors, but you can drive into it and be safe in the rain. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it seems very nice. Like you don't have to worry about tenants. You don't have to worry about like toilets. Right. And really it's just a giant warehouse with with doors. Yeah. And historically over the past, since 1970, it has done performed the best in recessionary markets, you know, so you do see a little dip in occupancy, but for the most part, it's one of the most stable investments in a recessionary market. Yeah. How has like this COVID-19 crisis affected your business? Well, we just opened up one facility right when Illinois got shut down. And the governor deemed us, and most governors have, the federal government did deem us essential. Because if you think about it, it helps in supply lines. Think of all the college kids that immediately got displaced and they had to go put their stuff everywhere. So it is slower. Our velocity is down. Usually Q2, the spring is our biggest season for self-storage. But we are releasing it up. We kept our doors open and we're you know getting people in. So it's just at a slower rate. And we obviously need to make sure that everybody's safe and you know feels comfortable coming in. And so we've taken the necessary precautions to do that. Have you had any issues with people who haven't been paying their rent for their facilities? No, we have not. And as a whole, the self-storage industry has, you know, I'm, we're part of a the self-storage association, but it's also a part of different groups. And the consensus is, you know, we're obviously all going through a tough time. And so, you know, to facilitate auctions or those sorts of things is not appropriate at this point in time. So there's been some deferrals, but for the most part, collections have remained consistent. There's been a slight uptick in, in non-payments, but every what the CubeSmart's position and the self-storage association's position has been that once the, the shelter in place has been released by state, then they will begin the normal procedures in terms of evictions or auctions, those sorts of things. 
But in general, self-storage is, you know, less than 5% of the overall marketplace in terms of turnover. So in most cases where people have not been paying, some of the larger operators are actually paying people to leave so that they can get good tenants in during this spring, the major, you know, upcycle in the spring. Yeah. So if someone were to get into self-storage, what are some of the things that they need to watch out for? What class are we talking about? If you want to go through all three or which? Yeah, let's go through all three. Okay. So on a class B or C, the biggest thing there is what is that property doing in relationship to the overall market? So, you know, when you look at a building, they're mostly run by mom and pops and they, they might not have, let's just say, the most complete accounting system possible. So they're like, oh, well, generally I get this. And, you know, you don't really know how much they're just taking off for living expenses. They don't treat it truly as a business. They treat it as a, a revenue source. So if they need money, they just pull it out, right? So it's always harder to get some of the accurate numbers in those types of you know situations. So you have to be careful that what are your true revenues coming in and what are your expenses? But then comparing that to what the marketplace is, is providing and seeing if there's room for uptick or improvement, you know, sometimes you go in there and, you know, they haven't raised rents in five, 10 years. And so if you look at it, you know, they might be charging $75 a month when the real rent's a hundred dollars a month. And so that's where you try to find value in that. And then you have to be able to put you know, what are appropriate expenses across the board in order to keep your facility operational. So that's the biggest thing is just getting the due diligence and knowing what it is exactly that you're buying and what the deferred maintenance is. On a class A, I mean, most of them are new or being built or what we're doing. And so for us, our due diligence is really making sure we understand the marketplace and then also understand that there's no conditions with the building. So you know, we're going to go meet with zoning. We're going to go meet with the pace people. We're going to go meet with the existing tenants. These are all things that we're waiting for the shelter in place to be lifted in the Kentucky market so that we can go in and complete our due diligence there. And so, you know, those are the most important things for us. You know, how old is the roof? Do we have to get a roofer in there? You know, what are the environmentals in terms of tanks, asbestos, those sorts of things? Now, if someone wanted to get into self-storage, or what would you recommend that they go to learn more information about it? Well, there's a couple of different things that they could do. I mean, one we have on our website, which is CODA, C-O-D-A-M-G.com, which is CODA Management Group. So CODAMG.com. And we have a lot of resources out there. So not just for what we're doing, but, you know, informational type things, some podcasts. We'll put your podcast on there, for instance. But we also have like a feasibility report and other tools and things along those lines, which describe what is happening in the self-storage industry and how to monitor it or how to assess it or evaluate it. Paul Morris is coming out with a new book about self-storage, and he was gracious enough to highlight us and use us as a case study in that. He's part of Bigger Pockets, and it's going to be published by Bigger Pockets. And so there's different resources out there where you can find information about self-storage. Perfect. And before we go, is there any like recommendations that you should have in terms of you know, what to expect, how much they should be saving before thinking about getting into self-storage? Well, again, it really depends on what you're trying to go into. If, if you're looking to be the sole operator and buyer, I mean, if you're doing it with an SBA loan, it's your first time, then you might only have to put down 10%. If you're looking to be an investor in one, then you might only need, you know, depending on what the subscription is or the investment criteria, anywhere from you know, $7,500, $200,000. So, you know, it can really vary in terms of what you're doing or what you want to accomplish. You know, our friends, who you know, he operates throughout Ohio. He just bought another Class B facility. 
I think he picked up for $3 million. And so, you know, if you're going in that direction and then you probably need about 30% of that in order to do it yourself. So it really depends on what your goals and objectives are and, you know, what, you know, what you have available and what you're looking to accomplish. You know, I didn't pick that up earlier when you mentioned it, but SBA loans are small business loans, right? How are you able to do that to purchase real estate when, you know, it's real estate? Well, the SBA has a great program for self-storage, you know, so they love it. In fact, there's entire banks that specialize in doing SBA specifically for self-storage. And it is a business. So you're buying and operating an existing business. And that's one of the differences or distinctions about self-storage in real estate. It is first and foremost a business as well as a real estate investment. So that's why it qualifies under the SBA. So the payroll protection, the PPP is under the 7A. And so they're a little bit more overwhelmed right now. But the 504 program is still operational and functional during this time. And they're doing lending within the 504. Can you talk a little bit about that program? Well, there, there's two programs. There's the 7A and the 504. And, and there's different criteria in terms of what your maximum loan amount can be and balancing it out. And I, I'm certainly not the expert in the SBA with the distinctions between the two. Our projects have been a blend of both 7A and 504. And so it's just a matter of, you know, what are your maximum, the dollar amounts that you can borrow within each program. I think there's a cap like $5 million. Do they have like 1.25 DSCR requirement as well? If it's performing, you know, if it's an operational, then they'll be looking at the debt coverage ratio in terms of what your cash flow is. And But they're also going to be taking into account, you know, what your personal credits is and, you know, how your 10%, they might actually put 10 or 15% down. So they take all those things into consideration. So when you apply for an SBA, you're first applying with the lender and then the lender we'll put together the package to go to the CDC and the CDC underwrites it again. And they're the ones that actually submit it to the SBA. So each city has their own CDCs in Wisconsin. There's only one CDC for the entire state. So when we did the project in Wisconsin, we had to go through the name of them is the WBD, which I think is the Wisconsin business development corporation. And they're the ones that actually submit the application to the SBA. So you first get a a local lender, then you get the CDC, and then you get the SBA to approve it. So there's a three-step approval process. In the city of Chicago, there's like five or six CDCs alone in the city of Chicago. So every state has a different CDC, and you can find out who that is by working with your local lenders. Nice. And when you get your bridge to perm loans, that's not an SBA loan, right? Is that something from like a local bank? In that case, it is a perm loan. I mean, it's a 25-year loan. So they'll, they'll work on the amateurization schedule. So it's a product that we can keep out there for a long time if we need to. And that is through SBA? Yeah, through the SBA. Oh, wow. Cool. So basically for bridge to perm loans, they don't really care about your DSCR because they know that you're going to be doing work on it. And maybe after three years or so, do you want to talk about how the bridge to term loans work and what are some of the terms involved in it? Yeah, so... A bridge loan is just basically through construction or stabilization, and then it's into a perm. So typically within self-storage, when you get into larger facilities, then they'll be looking at like a, a CMB, collateralized mortgage bond and financing. And so to bridge to perm is really during the construction or lease up period of time. And then, uh, you know, one of the great things about the SBA is the fact that they'll allow the construction to happen, and then it would just become a permanent loan. And that's when the SBA technically buys it from the lender And that's where the lenders like it because it reduces their exposure and their cost basis. 
and then they get fees from the SBA. And so, you know, they like that because they can show it on their books, but they've also reduced their risk. Nice. Well, Scott, this was very informative. Thank you so much for sharing your information. Are there any last tips that you'd like to give to our listeners before we finish our show today? Well, if they have any questions, they can feel free to email us at info at coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. And, you know, that will go to Martin and we can, uh, you know, take a look and see how, you know, how we can answer your question. Perfect. And do you want to give a quick shout out to your websites uh, one more time? So our investment site is Coda, C-O-D-A-M-G.com. And our design build site is Coda Design Build, which is C-O-D-A-D-B.com. Those are our two websites. Perfect. Well, Scott, thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. My pleasure, Sean. Thanks for having us. All right. Take care. Here are some of the key takeaways from this episode. Investing in self-storage units is similar to investing in multifamily properties, except you don't have to worry about tenants and toilets, and you can get units for a fraction of the price. To be a great self-storage investor, you need to understand how to read demographics. Look for the demographics within one, three, and five miles from the subject property, and do market comparisons to see what your competitors are renting for. By doing your research and due diligence beforehand, you'll be able to see if you have a slam dunk deal or not. If you're interested in learning more about self-storage investing, contact Scott or check out his website, codamg.com. I hope you enjoyed this episode. You can find the show notes and other episodes on our site, everythingrei.com slash podcast. If you live in the Bay Area, join our meetup group, where we meet up twice a month in San Jose at meetup.com slash everythingrei. And if you thought this was a great episode, let me know what your key takeaway was and share it with a friend who's interested in real estate investing. Thanks and have a great day. This was another episode of the Everything Real Estate Investing Show with Sean Pan. If you enjoyed the show, leave us a five-star rating. It will only take a second and it'll help a lot. You can contact me at sean at everythingrei.com. That's S-E-A-N at everythingrei.com. Thanks and have a great day.